Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. 70% of Americans say they would prefer to die at home, but nearly 70% die in hospitals and institutions. 90% of Americans know they should have conversations about the end-of-life care, yet only 30% have done so. Being Mortal is a PBS film which delves into the hopes of patients and families facing terminal illness, investigating the practice of caring for the dying and explores relationships between patients and their doctors. Follows the surgeon, Dr. Atul Gawande, as he shares stories from the people and families he encounters. When Dr. Gawande's own fa- father gets cancer, his search for answers about how best to care for the dying becomes a personal quest. And uh, that film is uh, based on a book by Dr. Gawande, national bestseller. And uh, there is a uh, free screening of the film and a discussion of these issues, and that'll be happening in Logan a week from today, so Wednesday, September 14th, 7 p.m., in the Lundstrom Student Learning Center, which is 1295 East, uh, 10th North in uh, Logan's free and open to the public. Hope that you come and join us. We'll uh, preview some of those issues on today's uh, program. And uh, we bring in by telephone Amy Tucci, CEO of Hospice Foundation of America. Amy Tucci, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Great to be with you today. Uh, it's good to have you. Uh, Pat Sadowski, longtime hospice nurse uh, who's with Cash Valley Senior Consulting, joins me in the studio. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And Amy Anderson, who's Director of Outreach and also Spiritual Counselor with the uh, Hospice at uh, Sunshine Terrace Foundation, joins me. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for, uh, for being uh, with me. Uh, We're going to hear clips from the film and uh, discuss this, and uh, we hope that you'll uh, call in with your maybe personal experiences or or questions. Excuse me. And the number is 1-800-826-1495, toll-free 1-800-826-1495. You can also reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So, Amy Tucci, understand uh, that uh, your organization, Hospice Foundation of America, is uh, helping to sponsor these uh, public screenings of of this film. Uh, So thank you for that, first of all. Um, Why are you doing this? What, uh, What do you hope to accomplish? Well, this is made possible um, not only by our efforts, but all, but primarily from a, a grant by the John and Juana Harmon Foundation that um, that, that foundation um, uh, underwrote, uh, was an underwriter of Being Mortal on PBS, which is the, the film that's being shown around the country um, with our support. Um, what we're trying to um, do is, get people to talk about these issues, uh, and this film is a wonderful vehicle to make that happen. We have about 255 locations around the country right now um, screening the Being Mortal film, and we are hoping to reach more than 30,000 people throughout the United States at a very, um, you know, face-to-face, uh, in a very face-to-face way about these issues. Let me turn, I want to hear the opening of the film uh, next, but I want to turn uh, to uh, Amy and Pat here in studio. So, Pat, um, you've dealt with these issues, uh, I imagine, on a pretty regular basis, uh, being a a hospice uh, nurse. Is is there one particular person that sticks out to you, that really impacted you? There are actually um, quite a few, but the ones that stick out or stand out um, the most are the ones that are prepared. They seem to do better. Their families seem to do better when it's all over and done. Um, the ones that are forward-thinking and planning um, have a better death, mm-hmm. in my experience. Mm-hmm. Amy Anderson, same question to, to you. Um, any one person stick out or, or in composite, what uh, what sticks out to you most? Well, there actually is one patient who really sticks out. She herself was a, a registered nurse, and she had renal failure, and she chose to not go under dialysis, because I think as a nurse, seeing um, the journey and the the time that that took, her view was that the quality of her life without treatment would be better than the quality of life with treatment. And I think that's a question most of us have to explore is, if I have treatment, what will my life look like? And if I choose a different path, what will my life look like? Mm. And I think for her, um, it was important to be able to spend time doing the things she loved with the people she loved. She didn't want to spend three days a week in a facility. And um, to me, that was a really powerful, powerful message of be honest about what's ahead of you. I think she was very fortunate in that she was in the medical field. 
so she knew what those journeys would end up looking like. For most of us, we're walking into this completely blind. We don't understand, first of all, the disease. We don't understand the treatments. We're relying on other people to give us that information. And it taught me that it's really important as someone involved in a hospice care team how much we do need to communicate to to people what their options are so that they can make an informed decision. Amy Tucci, I imagine this resonates uh, with you, and it it, it occurs to me that, you know, Amy Anderson's example, there was a registered nurse, she'd probably thought about these things in a way perhaps other people haven't. So uh, that underlines the the idea of preparation. Absolutely, and not only preparation, but the need for clinicians in the in the medical field to communicate um, prognosis and um, just the, the the you know how wise treatment is what treatment will um, involve and and when treatment is no longer effective that's those are very necessary things for people to be able to make decisions um, so with these screenings, we try to bring together, encourage the community hosts to bring together not only members of the public, but also um, clinical people, um, people who are working both in um, uh, not only in hospice, but also um, in fields like oncology and um, um, you know renal disease. Uh, Heart, heart disease, bring those clinicians in so they can, they can also understand the importance of having clear um, and sensitive conversations with their patients so they're, they're prepared that they can make these decisions, they can start making these decisions. Hopefully, people will think about issues around death and dying before they get into a situation where they, they have, they're pressed to make a decision. Uh, I think that always helps, but um, failing that, uh, you know, getting clinicians to have these conversations is very important too. Uh, yeah, that's one thing I got from the film is is this is hard for doctors. It's hard for medical professionals. You, you see throughout the film, you'd see that they're uncomfortable um, talking about this. And Dr. Gawande at, at one point in the film, he says, this is so hard that we have specialists, right, called palliative care physicians or absolutely I mean it's just very difficult I mean physicians have not been trained to have these conversations that's changing a little bit in medical schools throughout the country but um, by and large I would say that most uh, physicians are are not prepared they they by their own admissions many um, studies have shown that they don't feel prepared to have these discussions with their patients let's hear a clip from the film Uh, this is number two uh, sound clip number two, if, if I've got it right, uh, a woman, uh, uh, her, her name is Sarah Monopoly, um, has, has died, passed away, and her husband and uh, Dr. Gwandi are having a conversation about, uh, about the choices that uh, Sarah and her husband made in consultation with Dr. Gwandi. I did not know it was an outright lie. <laughs> you could lose your license for that. <laughs> I know. But I, you know, I think I would, I, I don't think I was terribly equipped for having that conversation and maybe you all weren't I don't think we were um, I've thought often about what did that cost us what did what did we miss out on what did we forego by consistently pursuing treatment after treatment after treatment which made her sicker and sicker and sicker the very last week of her life she had brain radiation she was planned for the experimental therapy the following Monday. You woke up and she wasn't doing so well on a Friday. What, what, what happened then? So she woke up and was gasping for air. And I tried to crank the oxygen up. I said, let's max this thing out. Maybe we get a bigger oxygen machine. We were so close to getting to the next potential fix. And she said, I can't do this. I can't do it at home. I'm, I'm too scared. I'm gasping for air and I can't, can't do this. We should have started earlier with the effort to have quality time together. The chemo had made her so weak that she couldn't hold Vivian. It was exhausting. And that was not, that was not a good outcome for the, for the final, final months. It's not where we wanted to be. <laughs> 
And uh, you heard at the beginning of that, they're, they're kind of joking about you could lose your license. That has to do with uh, Dr. Gawadi admitting that he outright lied. He has a regret that he, that he gave them hope. He really wanted to give them hope. Pat Sadowski, that's a medical professional. I imagine that's a temptation. You, 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 you want to give them as much hope as you can, even if you know inside uh, it, it's less hope than, than perhaps you're portraying on the outside. I think that's the, probably one of the hardest things that physicians are faced with. And I think, um, as Amy mentioned, the nurse that she cared for, um, we need to have people refocus and this monopoly family as well and quantity versus quality. And, and maybe it would be better to take the quality and have that time with that little baby mm-hmm. that Sarah and her husband had just given birth to. Um, and forgo all the treatment that was agonizing in the end yeah. and not successful. Amy Anderson, uh, that's, uh, you know, this, the, the nurse that you referenced made the other choice, right, the, the different choice. But uh, in a, for the doctor, it's you want to give hope, you want to you help the patient fight. For, for a lot of patients, they want to fight, they want to live, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's just very in, hard. in general, accepting that life is shorter than we want it to be is just a really hard place to be. Mm-hmm. And for physicians and other medical professionals, you know, training is focused on cure. It's curative measures. And so death is really the ultimate failure, mm-hmm. I think, for many healthcare professionals. So it is a retooling of how you think. It is a retooling of how you approach patients when it's constantly that focus is what can we do to make you better and kind of recognizing that tipping point of when better is no longer going to be an option it's really up to the patient to define what better is. Yeah. Like Pat said, is better the quality of life or is better the quantity of life? And there's certainly patients who choose to continue to fight until the very end, and that's their choice, and that's fine. So I, d- I don't want people to listen to this and think that we're recommending that you know, when you're ill or when you're facing a chronic or a, a life-threatening illness that the better choice is to not treat. Absolutely. It's always the patient's right to yeah. choose in conjunction with their family and their physician, what path of treatment they'd like to follow. Mm -hmm. But it's still important to always keep in mind that you are going to hit that point where treatment decisions can go one way or the other and to feel like you're informed when you're making those. Yeah. Uh, Amy Tucci, I wonder, uh, Dr. Gawande is really, he's he's introspective, well, throughout the film, but in in that passage, he's, he's suspecting that he didn't quite do it the right way. And I want, first of all, from the physician's perspective, uh, how, how can physicians have, I guess, a, uh, handle this in a, in a better way with patients? Well, I think the, you know, the obvious answer is he could have been less hopeful, um, maybe more honest. I mean, he may even agree with me saying that, um, more um, realistic. Uh, but, you know, this was a young woman. Um, she had just given birth. Uh, um, you can understand the very human qualities um, that he has also of, of wanting to try everything to preserve her life. Um, and, you know, I think it, you're, you're so right in calling it introspective is he realizes afterward that, you know, that wasn't the right thing to do. But I think earlier communication about um, the effect that the chemotherapy would have on her, her quality of life, um, the chances for um, an extended life. Um, if he had had those conversations up, you know, much earlier in the disease progression, um, the end of life would have been better for the family. Um, and, you know, in hospice, we all often try to talk about I mean, th- this idea of hope, um, being, hope being associated with hope for a cure. There are many other things to hope for, um, and I think hospice can give um, people hope, hope for um, your sort of your definition of hope changes, but there are many other things to hope for, hope for a, um, a, a good death, hope for the chance to spend time with your family, um, hope to not be sick for the final, you know, incapacitated by illness in the final stages of life. So I think uh, hope is also can be found in hospice, hospice care. And, um, and so I just want to make sure that we're not saying that hope is, is only t- 
to hope for a, a you know a few more months with a um, a very painful illness um, that leaves you incapacitated. Uh, before we go to break, I want to uh, go around the, the table here, starting with Amy Tucci. You, you talk about hope. That's very important, very important hope. It can cut both ways, right? And I, I want to frame this next question by quoting Dr. Gawande, uh, who says he at one point he realized uh, hope is not a plan. Hope is not a plan. That's kind of a mantra that he, that he says. I wonder if you could uh, talk about that and, and what, what we need to do to plan. Right. Well, I think the, you know, in the common um, way we use hope is just this hope, hope is a plan. Hope is, hope is a plan for most people. Um, that if we just hope that we'll get well, um, we'll get well. And, and often that's just not the reality. Um, and as, as sad as it is, it's the human condition. But um, I think he, that this film so beautifully portrays um, these real-life situations that everyone can relate to. And um, um, we found that through the screenings that we've done so far throughout the country, of those people who have not um, made advanced care plans or had conversations with their family about their um, ideas about end-of-life care and end-of-life treatment and medical treatment toward the end of life, 97% of our audiences say after viewing Being Mortal that they will now make plans. And that's just an amazing uh, impact that this film and the discussion afterwards can potentially have on, you know, the American public's idea of death and dying. Amy Anderson, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, I think, you know, it's important to think about why we don't plan. What are we afraid of in mm-hmm. terms of that? And I think it is. It's really unsettling to think and talk about your own death. And I know within some families, people don't want to bring it up because they're worried about potential conflict with their family. They're worried about traumatizing their family by discussing it. Um it can make you think about all the things that you didn't accomplish in your life. So there's reasons that we don't. And I think a film like this does help you feel better prepared to address those questions. And and it's part of that planning process. So if hope isn't a plan, then what is the plan? Mm-hmm. And I think that this film has really done a good job of helping people identify if you choose to sit down and do this, if you choose to really think about what matters to you, um, you can plan and you can move forward. And it it doesn't have to be conflict-filled. It doesn't have to be unsettling. It doesn't have to make you feel rueful about what you didn't accomplish, but allows you that opportunity to perhaps think about what you have accomplished in your life. Mm-hmm. My, uh, I'll share this. My, my father died uh, four years ago. In fact, the anniversary was next week. Um, and having gone through that, and it, uh, he had a, had a pretty good death, I thought. He, he it went fairly quickly, and he it was at home and surrounded by family. And um, But the family having gone through that, uh, I think that has affected us. And we, we are having some of the conversations we should have with Mom. Uh, and she's leading that. Um, probably we should be having some other conversations as well. And it brings up the fact, Pat Sadowski, that these that it is difficult. It's very difficult. difficult. And I think you should take that opportunity, you know, to have your family have that conversation at the next generational level. Mm -hmm. Um, We love to think that we're invincible and and then suddenly our parents die and and we're like, oh my goodness, we're the oldest generation now. And our kids generally don't want to talk about it. Um, But I think at certain hallmark moments, we should bring it up and say, listen, I know you don't want to talk about this, but I have a need to, mm-hmm. and try to put some things on paper. Yeah. And Pat and I have some tools we can give you oh, okay. <laughs> for relief well, today to help you with have the conversation right. process. Uh, why don't we do that now? What to, where where to go? Where what where can people look? Um, I'd appreciate that personally, uh, and our audience, I'm sure, will as well. Where how to have that conversation? What to do? Well, I actually recommend a website to people called mm-hmm. the Conversation Project. Um, it's it's a great place that has some guides you can print out to talk to your family that help you kind of first begin to think through what is important to you. And there's scales in it, so it's pretty simple and easy to fill out. Not that those thoughts and concepts are easy to think through, but it provides a framework for the individual to begin to first start with themselves. 
and think about what are the things that they value. And it covers things from, you know, how much information would you like from a medical provider if you were ill? How much treatment do you think you would want? Um, what abilities are so critical to you um, that you can't imagine your life without them? It kind of sorts through those things and then provides that that template for you to then sit down and talk to your family. So it's a great website. It's theconversationproject.org. And um, I know Pat has some other sources that she uses, but that's one that I really have found to be helpful in spreading the word about why it's important to have end-of-life discussions. Theconversationproject.org. Thank you. Any any other tools? And I'll ask Amy Tucci as well. Pat Sadowski first. Um, Aging with Dignity is one. um, But I think I agree with Amy that this tool is um, the best in, in getting people off square one. It just helps them get started and have that conversation. Most people are pretty uncomfortable with it. There's a couple of clips on the website that um, show families mm-hmm. and how tender the moment can be. So, uh, Amy Tucci, at tools that you would recommend? Well, I uh, second both of those recommendations. They're both great tools, uh, both the um, Conversation Project and the Aging with Dignity booklet that's called Five Wishes, um, and the Five Wishes um, is a simple booklet that sort of walks you through things, um, issues related to end-of-life care, and it can um, um, be purchased through agingwithdignity.org. Um and, and I know that many of our sites are using um, that booklet to, to help with the conversations following the film. And we actually have, um, again, through grant funding, we have obtained 100 copies of that that we will have available at the screening next week for people to take home with them. So mm-hmm. the Five Wishes booklet will be made available. Great. Uh, let me, let's me let go to break. Before we do that, uh, let me plug the event that's happening in Logan. Uh, there's a screening of the film, Being Mortal, from which we're hearing clips today on the program. Uh, it's from uh, Frontline on uh, PBS. You'll be able to see the film, and then we'll have a discussion afterward, and you'll get some tools, some, some uh, takeaways from that. That uh, event is Wednesday, September 14th, a week from today, Wednesday, September 14th, 7 p.m., in the Lundstrom's uh, Student Learning Center, that is across the uh, street to the uh, east from the cemetery, uh, 1295 East, uh, 10th North in Logan, uh, Lundstrom Student Learning Center on the USU campus, and uh, Wednesday, September 14th, 7 p.m., free and open to the public. And free parking across the street, because that can be an issue up here on campus. <laughs> okay, free park. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good note. Um, Amy Tucci, CEO of the Hospice Foundation of America, is with us by telephone. Pat Sadowski, longtime hospice nurse. She's with Cash Valley Senior Consulting. And Amy Anderson, Director of Outreach and Spiritual Counselor at Sunshine Terrace Foundation, are with me. Uh, and uh, we would entertain your questions or comments. Hope that you'll uh, call us or email us if you have such. And uh, two ways to do that, toll-free by telephone, 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your experience. Uh, more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Escalante Canyons Art Festival, Everett Roost Days, September 16th through the 25th, including art exhibitions, speaker series, and workshops. Details at escalantecanyonsartfestival.org. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. I recently heard an employee complain that my boss doesn't respect my opinion. Instead of giving sympathy, I said, leave your opinion at home. In a good work environment, opinions don't matter. Facts matter. Facts are data combined with analysis. If you have data and solid analysis, then your leader and colleagues better listen, and they probably will. But your opinion doesn't matter. So leave your opinion at home and bring facts and good analysis to work. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business. A 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are hearing clips from an impactful film. It's from PBS from the Frontline series. It's called Being Mortal. And we're talking about end-of-life issues. That's the subject of the film. It delves into the hopes of patients and families facing terminal illness and investigates the practice of caring for dying, explores relationships between patients and their doctors. Um, and at the center of the film, and this is based on a book by Dr. Atul Gawande of the same title, uh, he's a surgeon. He shares stories from people and families he encounters. And when Dr. Gawande's own father gets cancer, his search for answers about how best to care for the dying becomes a personal quest. And uh, we are talking about end-of-life issues and uh, previewing a screening of the film, Being Mortal, and discussion following. It's an, uh, it's an event that's free and open to the public, and that's happening a week from today, Wednesday, September 14th, 7 p.m., uh, in the Lundstrom Student Learning Center, which is 1295 East 10th North in Logan, a free parking across the street. And uh, that is free and open to the public. Hope that you'll come. Of course, if you're not in the Cache Valley area, probably won't be coming. So we hope that you'll uh, give us your uh, your questions, your comments, maybe your experience with uh, these end-of-life issues uh, uh, through our website, uh, rather through our email, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or toll-free 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. We have with us Amy Tucci, CEO of Hospice Foundation of America, Pat Sadowski, longtime hospice nurse, and uh, she's with uh, Cash Valley Senior Consulting, and Amy Anderson, Director of Outreach and Spiritual Counselor at Sunshine Terrace Foundation uh, in Logan. Let's hear uh, clip number four to begin uh, this segment. This is Dr. Gawande uh, talking about his father. Um, this is when uh, these issues become personal for Dr. Gawande. There's no natural moment to have these conversations, except when a crisis comes, and that's too late. So I began trying to start earlier, talking with my patients, and even my dad. I remember my parents visiting. My dad and my mom and I had sat in my living room, and I had the conversation, which was, what are the fears that you have? What are the goals that you have? And you know, he cried, and my mom cried, and I cried. He wanted to be able to be social. He did not um, want a situation where if you're quadriplegic, you could end up on a ventilator. You know, he said, let me die if that should happen. I hadn't known he felt that way. This was an incredibly important moment. These priorities became our guidepost for the next few years. And they came from who he was as a person, who he'd always been. My dad came from a little farming village in the middle of India, you know, thatched mud huts, uh, no running water, a village of about 5,000 people. His father had 13 children. His mother died from malaria when he was about 10. That was when he decided he wanted to be a doctor. He went to medical school in India. Afterwards, he was offered a job in a hospital in New York City, training to be a surgeon. He met my mom and married her. And they moved to Athens, Ohio, to set up their medical practices and raise a family. There, he was part of the community, and that became especially important to him after the cancer. So that's, uh, I love getting that taste of Dr. Gwandi's uh, father, extraordinary uh, person. His mother as well, must have been. I, I think all three of them were doctors, if I got mm -hmm. the, the film right. Yes. Mom, dad, and son. Uh, let me start with Amy Tucci with this. Uh, so for the elder Dr. Gwandi, he was very firm in his priorities. He had thought it through. I wonder what suggestions you you might have for people and what what priorities they might they might set or what trade-offs they might think about. I think the most important thing to do, Tom, is to think about what matters most to you. Um, so, uh, what matters most to you in terms of um, your, the interaction with your family, your quality of life, um, how you want to live, and um, um, as I said before, also being able to have honest and open conversations with your physician um, about uh, what treatment may involve. Um, so I, I think that's, that's really it in a nutshell. It's what really, 
what matters most to you. Mm. Um, and if if the idea of potentially being um, in, as Dr. Gwande was saying about his father, um, if he could potentially end up a paraplegic um, or quadriplegic because of this tumor that he had in his spine, which was which that's the, what the you know surgery could potentially uh, entail um, or any other kind of treatment, then maybe um, maybe you'd prefer not to go through that. Um, and those are just uh, those are honest things, honest conversations that people have to have with themselves, I, I believe before even having them with their own loved ones. Pat Sadowski, later in the film, Dr. Gawande, the younger Dr. Gawande, says his father, uh, during his last four months, was a person and not a patient because of the priorities that he had, that he had set. How, and that, I think, was what everyone would want. How, how do you accomplish that? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I think people need to know that they have choices, that, that they don't have to. They have options, and they should ask for all the options. And then they have choices, and maybe once that choice was made for Dr. Gawande's father, he was able to put aside all the questions and say, okay, this is what's rest the rest of my life. This is what I have. And I think um, he found a sense of peace, it sounds like to me. Mm-hmm. And community, that was important. Amy Anderson, that, that, that resonated with me. It was important to the elder Dr. Gawande to have that, that community. Absolutely, and I think, you know, community is goes well beyond just your immediate family and community can be I found in the hospice team that often becomes um, part of that person's community and it's amazing how quickly relationships and care and concern and love grow and the people that are helping to care for a family member when they are nearing the end of their life and it's it it can be um, that term a good death and to be surrounded by people that you know are genuinely interested in you and care for you and are there to help you along that journey is really important. So yeah, building that community, it can be people that are already in your life, but you'll be amazed and surprised by how your community broadens and expands. Even as as your world is shrinking, your life and your community can continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Amy Tucci, I, I so appreciate Dr. Gawande's um, willingness to, to share, you know, the what he considers failures, that introspection, introspection we talked about earlier. Uh, he talks about in the film, he, he's looking at an, an X-ray, a, a scan of his father with another surgeon. And he says, we're surgeons. And so we're looking at this tumor and we want to take it out. <laughs> you, know, we, we're, you know, if you're carpenters, you're going to build that house. Um, mm-hmm. and, and elsewhere in the film, someone says uh, sometimes patients have to lead because uh, doctors will be looking at what they're trained to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we can't fault doctors for doing what they're trained to do. Um, um, our hope is that they can be trained to also have conversations when it's necessary to have conversations. Um, but I, I, I do sympathize with the position that that physicians uh, find themselves in often, um, um, not being sure, um, I mean, um, you know, sort of the, maybe the joke is that's why they call it medical practice, because no one's ever quite sure um, about the outcome of a treatment. But um, um, the, the need of um, doctors to be able to have these conversations, I think, is, is very important. Most people don't get... Um, into, you know, let's take hospice care just as an example. If somebody decides to choose hospice care, um, often those um, conversations that would provide hospice as an option to patients take place far too late in the disease process so or illness process. So somebody might get into hospice but have uh, two days in hospice care where hospice is really... Um, um, it's all about providing you with the best quality of life at, uh, possible at the end of life. And for people to only be able to take advantage of two days of that is um, uh, really tragic in many situations. Hmm. Well, talk about uh, fears that people have. Um, and this talked about in the film. There's a, there's a man named Bill Brooks, and there's some very wrenching scenes between him and his uh, doctor. 
as they struggle to communicate. And, and he really wants to fight. There's a scene near the end when he, where he's obviously, he feels conflicted about the fact that he's given up the fight. Um, but his doctor asks him directly, Pat Sadowski, what are your concerns? What are your fears? That seemed to me to be a really good question. It is a really good question. I think um, what Amy and I probably experience quite a bit when we enter a hospice family's home is a sense of a burden being lifted when they make the decision to stop treatment and and be comfortable. And that's kind of what hospice is all about, is mm-hmm. let's make you comfortable. Let's try to honor your wishes. Let's try to have you have a peaceful death with yeah. the people you care about surrounding you. Yeah. Amy Anderson, what, in your experience, what are people's fears? What do they tell you? I think, you know, as, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of times it's a concern about a family conflict or disappointing their family or, you know, we all are busy doers. And I think especially in this community I found in Cache Valley, you know, people are very focused on achievement and doing, and it does, it feels like giving up on yourself or or giving up on on life and people don't want to do that and I think that's their biggest fear is sometimes you don't want to be you don't want to be viewed as a quitter mm. and um, you do have to understand that at some point in time there's going to be that trade-off between what are you willing to do to gain just a little bit more time if the quality of that time is not going to be one where you have the strength um, to do what you need to do and I think it's very important that healthcare providers are as honest they can be in that prognosis process. So it's not just here's the chances of curing, but it's um, and here's also what that looks like. Here's your strength may be weakened. You may or may not be able to do these things. So prognosis is not just, you know, if we operate, there's a 10% chance that the cancer can come back. There's also all of those other components that go along with it um, Mm -hmm. when you're thinking about what your life is going to look like. Yeah. Amy Tucci, what, in your experience, what, what do people tell you? What, what are their fears when they, when they think about end-of-life issues? You know, Tom, I think some of the biggest fears are the welfare of your other family members um, once you've passed away. So um, I think people are afraid, um, um, uh, you know, about the welfare of, of their wife and wife or their their you know, sons or daughters or um, that that sort of thing. Um, and and I think there's also, in many cases, um, um, particularly, I, I don't want to single out veterans um, on this, but, but I think oftentimes there's some fear associated with sort of coming to terms with your life um, at the end of life. And um, um, there's been a lot of work done uh, regarding veterans and end-of-life care and, and um, the, the stoicism that veterans have held for so long um, as, as just a, a quality that, that veterans must have and, and should have, really. But that stoicism can get in the way of uh, life sometimes and... and um, uh, so I think there there are often, you know, um, heavy burdens that that many people carry um, to their to their deathbed. Um, so that's that's what I would say. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I can certainly relate to the, the the veteran part of it too. You know, my father was was one of the, he he did talk about some things, but not others, and certainly. I've talked to other veterans who, uh, you know, just won't open up, and that, that could contribute. I could see to, uh, you know, to the kind of death maybe they would not want, you know, because they they won't talk. I think it's really interesting, though. What I found is that the closer people get to the end of their life, the more honest they are about their life and what's important to them. And, um, you know, I think that's why, to me personally, hospice is a wonderful service to take into your home and into your life because it does give you sometimes those neutral people that can help um, bear that honesty. Um, I think Amy had a good point that people are afraid to burden 
um, their own loved ones. And so when you bring other people into the equation, kind of neutral, trained people who kind of can understand and can talk through those things with you, it's amazing some of the things that people um, kind of have weighed heavily on them with and being able to just give voice to those gives them that freedom to to feel release. And I think it's important to recognize that a good death is different for everybody. You know, mm-hmm. for some people, um, being able to put grudges aside to to forgive, et cetera, is is part of a good death for other people. Like those veterans, that stoicism is so inherent and so important to them that they're they're going to hold on to that and they don't want to break. So I think. A, a good a good care team gets to know the patient, gets to know what's important to them, and can help them sort that out. Mm. Pat Sadowski, what if you find that uh, as well as, as a hospice nurse, people get more honest, they're able to let some things go as they approach end of life? They do. Um, they kind of have permission to, to um, express themselves. And I think, as Amy said, with the team, that's softened a bit. You know, they're not, they're not by themselves. They have a group of people to help them with it. And I think it um, it helps share the burden and it helps um, cross some bridges they maybe never would have crossed otherwise. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, hear another clip from the film. I want to set this up. This is a, a gentleman uh, by the name of Jeff Shields who's uh, found in the film. By the way, we are, uh, we're hearing clips from the film from a Frontline series on PBS. It's called Being Mortal. It's based on the book by Dr. Atul Gawande, best-selling book, and Dr. Gawande is featured, uh, of course, in the film. Uh, talks about end of life issues. We're talking about those issues today, and we are previewing uh, a screening and discussion, a free event, free and open to the public, that's going to be presented in Logan on Wednesday, September 14th, week from uh, today, Wednesday, September 14th, 7 p.m. in the Lundstrom Student Learning Center, 1295 East, 10th North in Logan, free parking across the, the road. I uh, hope you'll come to that uh, screening. hope you'll participate in this program, especially if you're unable to, to come to that, uh, that screening. So uh, Jeff Shields uh, and his wife uh, obviously have thought through these things. This is presented in the film, I think, as... Uh, uh, maybe a good example of how, how this can be done. And so he's very clear with his doctor. He says, these are my priorities. I don't want to die in the hospital. Uh, I don't want heroic measures. I want some quality of life at the end of my life. Um, and his doctor, of course, agrees and, and, uh, and honors that wish. Uh, let's hear uh, clip number six. This is indicating uh, to us the kind of death Jeff Shields had. begins with uh, him talking to his grandson uh, about dying. Have I talked to you at all about my thoughts on dying? And yeah. Is it too hard? Okay. Let me just tell you this. I'm not afraid of dying. I've had a long and wonderful life. And one of the nice things about being at the farm is that you realize everything dies. There's a cycle of life. The cows die, the trees die, the grass dies, the fish die, and people die. Aren't you sad um, that you're going to be missing out on a lot of things? Well, I will be. And, um, you know, I had hoped to have another 10 or 15 years. But you don't always get what you want, right? I love you. I love you, too. See you in a few minutes. In those last weeks, you know, as his as his space narrowed and narrowed to that bed, it grew in terms of the people he was drawing in. I hate to cry. Sorry. <laughs> um, but but that's another one of those paradoxes, you know, as as you're as your world comes closer and smaller and smaller, it becomes bigger and bigger. And, and, and he was seeing that. The last couple of weeks I've been surrounded by family and friends and uh, it's been terrific. Uh, you know, some of the best days of my life, I must say. 
But then there's a downward trend that's more rapid than I had expected. I felt great during that time, and my body was in rapid decline. Since then, my mind has been in rapid decline. I get confused. Um, so, but I'm still a happy guy. That's uh, Jeff Shields uh, talking about uh, his his death. Uh, let me go first to Amy Tucci with this. That's I think that's what we would all want, isn't it? Uh, th- that uh, as our world gets smaller and smaller, gets bigger and bigger, we're surrounded by surrounded by loved ones. And it sounds like he had uh, the last four months of his uh, life. That that was the good death. Oh, it's such a beautiful scene from the film. I'm I'm almost here. I've heard it, watched the movie <laughs> countless times, but. Um, it still gets this part still gets to me. Um, I think it's so beautiful, and I think his wife, the way she could put into words, you know, that his world getting smaller but bigger at the same time, was um, was just priceless. Um, and that's exactly what we would all want. And he was able to make that happen by making the decisions that he did. Um, early, relatively early in his treatment process. I mean, he opted not to have additional treatment and and had open and honest conversations with his physician, which are also um, part of the film, and it made a difference. Uh, let me just quickly, uh, we have an email uh, that's come in that was raising some good points, but uh, Amy Anderson, the conversation that uh, Jeff Shields had with his grandson, that's that's a conversation... Um, you know, I, I wish I'd had with, you know, with with my grandfather, or, you know, a conversation we wish we would have, but very few of us, I think, have. Absolutely. And I think to me, one of the interesting things about um, death and dying is stepping out of yourself as as the non-patient. We all kind of think about the fact that we have to say goodbye to somebody when they're dying, and we're very focused on how that's going to make us feel and our, our loss. And we don't always recognize that the person who's dying is saying goodbye to everybody that they know. Where it's one goodbye for us, it's magnified for that person. And so to me, that scene was just beautiful because it was. It was, it was just a snippet of what this patient was, was doing. But to, to be able to do that, to be able to say to his grandson, you know, I love you and I'm not afraid and goodbye, I'm sure that that conversation was probably echoed. Um, across the generations and across his entire family. But I think that really, to me, has been one of the biggest lessons of working with the dying is, you know, it's not about, it's not just my loss, but that person has multiple losses. And the sooner we can understand and accept that and help them through that, I think then they can make different choices about their care. Best ask anything you'd like to say quickly about uh, the Jeff Shields experience? Well, sometimes as team members, we can model that. We get attached to our patients as well, and we can say, you know, I'm going to really miss seeing you. I've really appreciated this. And it opens the door for them to be honest with their feelings as well. Let me read this uh, email. Thanks for this, uh, Laura. Laura in North Logan has emailed us. Uh, this is what she says. Great show. This topic is very needed in the community. Your guests have addressed the issue of doctors having the hard conversations with patients and their families. My husband is a local doctor who struggles with this issue. As he sees patients declining, he discusses these issues with uh, the patient and their families. However, there are several things that stand in his way, and she gives four. One, families are reluctant to have this conversation. They always believe they have time and the topic is unpleasant for them. Number two, as your program mentioned, the decision is often left until there is an emergency. At this time, the anxiety among family members is high, which uh, hinders the decision-making process. Number three, families need to communicate the plan to all family members. Disagreement among families can uh, tie a physician's hands. And number four, the way medicine is practiced has changed. Until recently, doctors took care of their own patients in the hospital. The doctor seeing the patient at crisis time knew the patient and had the feel for his wishes and the family dynamics. Now a hospitalist is, who does not know anything about the family sees the patient. Uh, 
my husband has observed that these doctors are much less willing to address these issues than the patient's regular doctor. What do you recommend for uh, bridging these gaps? Thank you, Laura in North Logan. Let me start with uh, Pat Sadowski and we'll just go around the panel. So what would you say? Just maybe pick one of those and uh, what's the, what would be the good response? Well, I think that's a perfect summation um, of the problems we do have. Um, I think the way medicine has changed has distanced the family doc from from the patient, and so often they're in the emergency room trying to make a, a quick decision when there's a catastrophe, um, a broken bone or something that um, went awry. And I think um, we need to have the emergency physicians be more comfortable having this topic too. You know, there's a possibility we can send you home on hospice and not not do a surgery, not um, hospitalize you in ICU with with tubes and, and fluids. Um, but I think it still starts with the family doc having the conversation about what if mm-hmm. and opening that door. Yeah. Amy Anderson, what would you say? There's some very good points raised there. One thing we haven't talked about is that, you know, there are documents that you can put in place to mm-hmm. communicate your wishes. We've talked about having the conversation with your family, but we haven't really spoken about the fact that there are advanced directives that you can complete that clarify what your wishes and your desires are. You can bring those with you to the hospital. You can have them on your refrigerator. Um, You can talk to your physician if you are have either a chronic or a severe illness about having a physician's order for life-sustaining treatment, which is an actual medical order that would identify what treatments you are and are not willing to accept. So it can include a do not resuscitate order. It can say, I don't want to be intubated. So there are things that family physicians can still pursue discussing with their patients to make sure that those documents are in place. And events like this that we're holding, we're going to make sure that that information gets out to the community that not only do you need to have that conversation with your family, but you need to document it. And as Laura pointed out, you need to make sure that every family member is aware. Just because you've appointed power of attorney for health care to somebody, you need to make sure that all of the other people in your family know who that person is, and they need to be able to be comfortable to stand up for what you wanted and what your wishes and desires are as well. So it's it, you have to make that choice wisely. And Amy Tucci, we have uh, less than a minute left. What, what would you like to say in response to, to Laura, the point she brings up? Well, I'd agree with everything that was said, especially the uh, woman who emailed in um, um, about those barriers that we have in our way. But I would point out that it's very important for people to know that um, under the Medicare um, benefit now, People can um, actually schedule time to have conversations with their doctors about their end-of-life care wishes. Um, it's a relatively new uh, reimbursement um, for doctors um, who participate in Medicare, and um, they can uh, people can have multiple conversations with their doctors about it, and their doctors are actually paid by the government to, to have that conversation. So if you're a Medicare um, um, recipient, beneficiary, then... Um, you should take advantage of that and ask your doctor to have the conversation with you okay. um, before you get sick. All right. Well, uh, much more to say, of course. And if you are able to come to the event, we'll have a, a broader discussion here. Uh, thank you very much uh, to uh, all of my guests. The event, uh, screening of the film Being Mortal, and a discussion following that's Wednesday, September 14th, 7 p.m., Lundstrom Student Learning Center on the OSU campus. And I've had uh, with me in uh, studio uh, Amy Anderson from Sunshine Terrace Foundation. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And uh, Pat Sadowski, a longtime hospice nurse. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And uh, we also uh, thank Amy Tucci from the uh, Hospice Foundation of America. Thank you so much. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan.